The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Debbie and I got married, we, uh, we decided... Probably I decided, but Debbie went along with it, that we would be trendy and cool and write our own vows. And we spent what felt like hours, days, weeks laboring over just the right wording of those vows. The wedding day came, and for the life of me, I mean, literally to save my soul, I couldn't remember them. I could not memorize five lines of vows. So in, at the last minute, we hastily went to a typewriter. For some of you, that's an old machine that used to be very prevalent in offices. And we quickly typed out the vows and taped them on a, t- took this three by five card and taped them to the little prayer bench that was in the sanctuary at the Enid Mennonite Brethren Church. And as we stood there holding hands, instead of looking deeply into my bride's eyes, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my prompts. 37 years later, I still can't remember what all I promised. Now, before you go, oh, that's terrible, let me tell you, that Debbie has used my lack of being able to remember what I promised (laughs) to her advantage on any number of occasions. As well she should. As well she should. I promised you'd take out the trash every Saturday. Yeah, Yeah, she told me that once. (laughs) The prophet Jeremiah had to deal with a nation that couldn't remember its marriage vows. Jeremiah the prophet in this long prophetic book embodies three uh, main roles. In the first half of the book, he is the divorce attorney. He is literally litigating a divorce settlement between Yahweh and Israel. Israel, God's covenant partner, has broken faith with God. And it falls to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's calling is to be the lawyer who who finally creates a settlement whereby God is exonerated for His covenant faithfulness and Israel is condemned for its covenant unfaithfulness. 
the end of the book, the second half of the book, Jeremiah is the alternative historian. Instead of telling the court history of Babylon or the fi- writing about the final days of the kingdom of Judah as a great heroic struggle against a superpower, Jeremiah tells it as it is. The, coll- the, the utter collapse of a people who were once proudly faithful. But in the middle of this prophetic book, the heart of Jeremiah's Jeremand, if you ever wondered where that term came from, Jeremiah functions as a remarriage counselor. He imagines a new covenant. He imagines the bringing together once again of a remnant of the people of God and Yahweh who has been their God. He imagines a new covenant. That reimagination begins in chapter 29 with a letter to those who have been sent into exile. A letter unlike anything in Scripture. It's not a letter to hold fast, hang in there, tough it out, be, you know, be the erector of barriers and live in a concentrated, exiled ghetto. It's quite the opposite. It's build houses, plant gardens, marry off your kids, live life, pray for the welfare of the land which you've been sent into exile. Because when they experience shalom, you will experience shalom. It is stunning in its grace. It is stunning in what it challenges these exiles to do and to become. But it doesn't end there. Chapters 30 to 33 of the book of Jeremiah are this great book of consolation, this this let me paint a picture of what could be. Let me imagine with you what a future could look like. And a new covenant is unpacked. The old covenant that Moses mediated with God and the people of Israel was founded on ritual purity and holiness, the holiness of doing the right thing. Which is all fine and well if everybody's willing to do the right thing. But when doing the right thing gets in the way of being like everybody else in the world, that becomes a problem. And doing the right thing isn't so much fun anymore. And so... Jeremiah imagines a different covenant based on different realities. A new covenant founded on forgiveness and holiness as a way of relating rightly. No longer would it be if you do A, B, C, and D you will experience whatever the next letters are. Having one of those mornings, aren't I? <laughs> would, would you like to just... Cut? Okay, all right. <clears throat> Instead of 
doing right, it's about relating right. The covenant terms shift in Jeremiah's vision. And so he imagines this, and at the very heart of that reimagination, we read Jeremiah chapter 31. A chapter that begins with four great theological assertions. God is Israel's parent. God watches over His people. God is full of compassion. And God refreshes the weary. And because of that reality, as Jeremiah sets it up, because of who God is, three things are going to happen. There will be a solid society created. Verses 27 to 30. And at the end of the chapter, the city of God, the promised land will be rebuilt. Verses 38 to 40. But at the heart of that, at the heart of Jeremiah's desire to see Yahweh and His people brought back together are these verses. 31 to 34. The essence of a new covenant. A new covenant that's guaranteed a new arrangement, a new marriage between God and God's people. The promise of consolation and the recovery of right relationships in, in this passage are, are really about God's action to restore His people. God promises in verse 31 a coming consolation. A coming standing alongside the alone one. Which is what consolation means. To stand alongside one who is alone. Here is, here is Israel, the people of God, left bereft and in ancient Near Eastern culture abandoned in theory by their God because when you lost a war in the ancient Near East, your God lost, you had to convert. Neener, neener. End of discussion. Yahweh should have been on the dustbin, the dust heap of history. And instead, Jeremiah paints a picture of God animating, coming alongside, full of life with His people again. A promise of consolation. Those who were alone would no longer be alone. And there would be a reunion. A reconnecting. A gathering together again. And this covenant would be based on four actions by God. The first action is He would write the Torah on the hearts of His people. This is a clear allusion back to Mount Sinai and the very finger of God writing on the tablets that Moses would bring down from the mountain. Tablets that Moses in his anger destroyed when he saw the idolatry of his people. Instead, God will write His law, His instruction, His Torah, His words of freedom and blessing on our hearts. He will touch our lives, Jeremiah says. God's no longer a distant God waiting for you to 
be ritually pure enough to approach Him. God has instead reached into that cold, stony, broken heart and began that cardiac massage to reanimate it and to get our blood pumping again with His words of grace. That's the God, Jeremiah says, that comes to us. And it is, secondly, a God-shaped covenant. It is a God-initiated covenant. The, the spiritual quest of Judaism and Christianity has never been one of us looking for God. In, in fact, quite the opposite. All the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve broke faith with God the first time, they hid. And God came looking for them. Adam, where are you? Oh, we're, we're hiding because we were naked and we figured that would be offensive. So, sorry. God's always been on a quest for us. That's the essence of our faith. God's looking for us. I will be your God and you will be my people. The promise of God always leads off with what God's willing to do, what His commitments are, what His faithfulness looks like. Not what we've got to do to earn it, because we can't. And so, our faithfulness becomes a response of thanksgiving to a God who generously seeks us, who lovingly embraces us, who offers us hope and peace in a covenant of justice. Now that, that heartfelt Torah, that, that God-shaped covenant, are, are, are shaped by, grounded in, demonstrated by what Jeremiah describes as the universality of forgiveness. That God's primary way of operating with us is not to tell us how awful we are, but to love us just the same. That God's primary stance towards us is one of readiness to forgive, of one of desire to forgive, one of forgiving. Whatever we've done in our lives, whatever we've said, whatever we wish we could take back, whatever's broken us, whatever's, whatever's left our hearts stony and crusty and, and surrounded by solid rock, God's desire is to forgive us and to help us move on. It doesn't mean we always welcome it. doesn't mean we always accept it. doesn't mean... We don't stumble into what we experience as judgment, but it does mean that God's stance towards us, God's posture towards us, God's desire towards us is always arms open, ready to embrace. Always one of forgiveness. And God pulls that off. God pulls off that universality of forgiveness 
by what Jeremiah describes as the divine gift of forgetfulness. I will remember their sin no more. Now, in our sort of philosophical construction of you know, the God who's so great that you know, he can't possibly forget because then he wouldn't be God because he should know everything. And you know, when we start beginning to talk about how many angels dance on the head of a pin, we miss the point. We miss Jeremiah's point, which is God makes choices to love us in spite of ourselves, not because of how wonderful we are, And not because we've earned it or deserve it. Those things are beside the point. The point is, God desires a relationship with us where none of that matters. And so He offers us the divine gift of forgetfulness. And we can have the argument about the essence of God and the nature of God and His capacity to forgive and forget and all of that stuff. But what Jeremiah is telling us is that God's stance, His posture, His covenant towards us is none of all of that matters. What matters is how we go forward. Now we can sit here in our real world experience and go, well, wait a second, some, some people in my life have wounded me so bad, I'm never going to be able to forget. I may never even be able to forgive. To which I say, I understand that. And I don't disagree with that. There have been people in my life who've done things to me that try as hard as I can. Letting go of that is hard work. And forgiving? <laughs> Not likely this side of heaven, really. I confess to imperfection there. But we're talking about how God wants to deal with all of us. And God stands towards us just to pump life back into our hearts, to be our God, to genuinely forgive us, and then to forget the broken past and move forward into the future. That's God's stance, His desire. At the heart of Jeremiah's crazy letter about the end of Judah as a kingdom and the people of God going into exile and the heart of the 52 chapters of, oh my gosh, crazy stuff. At the heart of it are these verses that say to us, this is the essence of God. This is the God that desires relationship with you. And so, there is in Jeremiah this call to a covenant remarriage. And that covenant remarriage is based on us latching on to four propositions. First is the shared story of salvation. That, that our story is a continuation of the biblical story. Now, y'all know that I can barely go through 
two sermons a month without throwing some big German word at you. So here it comes. Heilsgeschichte. Not Bullsgeschichte. Heilsgeschichte. Heilsgeschichte is a German word which roughly translates salvation history. That, that the story of the Bible isn't a, a set of doctrinal imperatives and a checklist of beliefs. It is a set of stories that tell the story of how God seeks to save His creation. And our lives are a continuation of that. Our story grows out of these stories. In a, in a time and in a culture, a postmodern era, when we say there is no one story that, that shapes us all, the most radical thing a Christian can say is bunk. There is a story that shapes us all. It is God's story of seeking to heal creation. And here's story after story after story throughout the Hebrew Scriptures that tell that story of God seeking to heal broken creation. And sometimes it goes beautifully, and sometimes it goes terribly, and sometimes it takes generations, and sometimes it takes moments. But here's the story over and over and over again. Our lives connect to that story. Our lives lay go on to the Heilsgeschichte of Scripture and attach to that story. And we continue in our lives to declare that story that God is about healing His broken creation, which we're a part of. And so Jeremiah's call to a covenant remarriage is a, is a call first to, to own this story. This story that begins with God saying, let there be light, and continues to a wandering immigrant named Abram, and continues into a family, a tribe sojourning in Egypt and becoming slaves and being liberated and wandering in the desert until they can form uh, their identity as a self-governing people under a covenant with God. And then how they continually mess that up and fumble the ball. Finally to the point where God says, okay, I can't deal with this anymore. And the people of God go into exile and they go, oh my gosh, we get it. Give us another chance. And there's a return. And then there's a carpenter's son in a far-in-the-corner city of Nazareth who says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he dies on a cross and rises from the dead. And that word engulfs the Roman Empire and the rest of the known world. Until today, God is doing the same thing now He was doing back then.
Because, and this is the second point, it's a God of grace that's at the center of everything. We're, many of us in this room, many of us in this room, are walking wounded from church experiences where it wasn't a God of grace who was at the center of everything, but a God of compliance that was at the center of everything. If you will do this, then we will bless you. If you will behave in this way, then you're okay enough to be part of the church. And we lived with a God of compliance instead of a God of grace who says, all I want to do is fix what's broken. All I want to do is tell you how much I love you. And then our lives are about a response to that. It is a God of grace that's at the center of everything. And therefore, we know that God through the gift of forgiveness, through the agency of forgiveness. The Enlightenment formulation was, I think, therefore I am. I think the post-Christendom, post-modern formulation might be, I'm forgiven, therefore I am. It's when we know when we live in the confidence, the surety, the, the, the self-actualization, that God is a God who's forgiven us, who's, who's taken the cracks and the breaks and the, and the ruins of our lives and, have, and is in the process of making that all whole that we begin to truly live. Now, I, I wish I could stand up here this morning and say, ah, just check me out. I'm a shining example of how that works. I'm not. I'm a shining example of how to duck and cover from that kind of forgiveness because it scares the willies out of me to think that the God of the universe would desire to heal my life so completely that I can live fully and freely. All of us live in that fear. God's promise through Jeremiah was, I'm not interested in keeping score. I'm not interested in reminding you how you messed up before. I'm interested in moving forward. And so it's the tools of salvation and grace and forgiveness that forge that new covenant on the anvil of life. That God takes our lives red hot and malleable and he hammers us with salvation and grace and forgiveness until we begin to be molded into what he created us to be in the first place jeremiah is calling us in these verses back to a covenant remarriage back to hope so this morning, some questions for us to think about. What is the story that God's writing on your heart? All of our stories are different, just like every story in Scripture is different. Your story's different than mine. Mine's different than yours. What's the story that God's writing on your heart? How is, 
How is salvation and grace and forgiveness riding your life? How does God affect everything in your world? As the divine story is on your heart, how is the divine affecting your daily life? How do we go through the day paying attention to God? Third, who is it? Who do you know who needs forgiveness? Who's in your life that you need to forgive? Hint, it might be you. Sometimes we're the biggest culprit in our own story. The need for forgiveness. And when do we find that way of being able to let go, of being able to surrender, of being able to let God truly forgive us? And through all of that, what new paths is God inviting you to forge? How is God sending you on a new journey? Many of us in this room are lifers in this community with multiple generations living here. And we think, new journey? I'm, I'm pretty settled. I'm rooted. I'm, I'm here. Well, there are, there are journeys we can take without ever leaving home. What's the journey that God has for us? Individually and collectively. Where is God sending us? Through those tools of salvation and grace and forgiveness. I couldn't just settle on one more thing this morning. So there are two more things about the persistence of God. First, from the Talmud, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. If the soft water can wear away the hard stone, how much more can the words of the Torah, which are hard like iron, carve away into my heart, which is of flesh and blood? God writes His Word on our heart. It's not a word of condemnation. It's not a word of turn or burn. It's not a, it's not a word of, of judgment. It's a word of life. It's a word of hope. It's a word of justice and love and peace. Because a river cuts through rock, not because of its power, but because of its persistence. We look at the Grand Canyon. That's what persistence looks like. The most beautiful place I have ever seen in my life is created through the persistence of running water. The most beautiful lives are created through the persistence of God. Jeremiah proclaims a God persistent in seeking relationship, persistent in seeking recreation, persistent in seeking shalom. God is nothing and grace is nothing if not persistent. And even after completely and fatally rejecting God, 
God still sought Israel. And God still seeks us. Ready to cut through our rock-hard hearts and write His love on our hearts. What's God saying to you this morning?